your gut is adaptable. You change your diet today, your gut microbiome will be different by tomorrow. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. The gut microbiome is back on Live Well, Be Well, but did it ever really go away? Because today I'm joined by the leading gut health expert and gastroenterologist, Dr. Will Ostrowich. He's a New York Times bestselling author of Fiber Fueled and US medical director at Zoe. Today, Dr. B explains the science of our gut. We explore inflammation, food intolerances, and probiotics. But first, let's dive into the power of plant-based diets. As I was looking through what we're going to talk about today, it really took me back to 15 years ago when I was seen by a gastroenterologist after copious amounts of time of kind of being in and out of hospital due to my stomach. And he actually turned around to me and he said, Sarah, the one thing that maybe no one's told you, but I really believe in, is that I want you to start increasing your plant-based foods. And I want this to kind of be the main factor of your diet. Does a healthy gut mean that we need to be focusing more on plant-based foods, more so than anything else? Okay. Thank you, Sarah, for having me on the show. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that amazing gastroenterologist who was way ahead of the curve on that 15 years ago. The answer to this question is 100%. This is where the opportunity exists. And it's not just about the effect of the plants on our gut and our gut microbes, which we can, we can dive into as deep as you want to and really get into what happens there. Part of the story is what happens when we eat more plants. The other part of the story is our culture and what we have normalized in our society in 2023, which is very abnormal relative to the way that we have consumed food throughout the entirety of human history. And the thing that we've given up the most by far are the plant-based foods. So if you were to look at the dietary patterns within the United States, which of course are not exactly the same as they are in the UK. I mean, working with Zoe, being the US, the medical director for Zoe, I'm in London all the time. I see it's not the same, but they're not radically different either. And in the U.S., about 60% of our calories come from ultra-processed foods. These are foods that didn't exist 100 years ago. Our great-grandparents were not eating these foods at all when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And 30% of our calories come from animal products. Now, this is not to vilify animal products, but that is a lot. The average person in the United States is eating more than their body weight in animal products. And what's left is just 10%. Just 10% of our calories are coming from actual plant-based foods. And among that 10%, the number one plant is the potato. And there are healthy ways to consume potatoes. I, like, I, I think potatoes can be wonderful, but not as a French fry or as a potato chip. And, you know, chips in the UK are French fries and chips in the US are crisps in the UK. So, but however we want to use that same language, I'm talking about the same thing, which is a junk food version of the potato. So part of the story here, Sarah, is also that we are simply not consuming these types of foods, the foods that our gut microbes are used to, the foods that our gut microbes thrive when we consume. The way to tell is looking at fiber consumption because fiber ends up being the key piece of the puzzle. And if you look in the United States, 95% of Americans are not just deficient in fiber, wildly deficient, like Mm -hmm. way below the amount of fiber that they should be consuming on a daily basis. 
And if we look at and, and hold the UK to the same expectations and standards, you would find that it's roughly in the area of, of 90% that are not consuming an adequate amount of fiber. Yeah, it's huge. And I think a lot of our listeners would have heard, you know, the 30 different plant-based foods a week and try to aim for our diversity and abundance. And, you know, what does that look like? And we talk a lot about on the show. But I think there is a lot of misinformation out there. And there's a lot of different voices of influence also advocating a carnival diet or a keto diet and not including these plant-based foods. So what's kind of your your answer to that? Because from what I'm hearing is that neither of them are full of ultra-processed foods. So that's a great start. But the next step is actually they are then still quite different. And what's going on with our gut health there? Yeah, well, I think first of all, it's it's important to acknowledge there are parts of these dietary patterns that are good and that I support, as crazy as that may sound. I love the fact that they get rid of ultra-processed foods mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, now, mm-hmm. naturally, if you go to your store and you find ketogenic uh, ultra-processed foods, well, that's not what we're talking about here. So any dietary pattern that eliminates ultra-processed foods from my perspective is a step in the right direction. That being said, um, a carnivore-based diet is a 100% animal product-based diet, and that is not a sustainable dietary pattern, nor is that in the best interest of your health in the long term. Mm-hmm. It can make you feel better in the short term, And that's particularly because you already have a damaged gut. People who don't have a damaged gut and they're thriving, they see no reason to pursue a carnivore diet. They would never do that. The person who's choosing to chase the carnivore diet is because they're looking for help. They're looking for a solution and they're struggling. Specifically, they're usually struggling with gut-related issues and they, Mm -hmm. they, they don't feel well when they increase their fiber intake, which we can unpack what's going on there and why that would be. But that's the reason why a person goes towards the carnivore diet. This is not in a sustainable dietary pattern that is not in your best health interest in the long term. And even among influencers who have actually followed a purely carnivore-based diet, you have seen them withdraw from it. There's very few of them, but the ones who do, you've seen them withdraw from it because it's dangerous. Mm. There's issues there. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, like where do you get your vitamin C from? (laughs) (laughs) Fruits and vegetables. Right. Yeah. So vitamin C, vitamin C, there's a condition called scurvy. We used to see it among sailors. Now we see it among people who are too rigorously following a carnivore-based diet. Wow, that's mad because you actually only need such a small amount, like 200, 200 milligrams or something, isn't it, of vitamin C that you need to, to, to not get scurvy. So actually that is, that is such a small amount that you need and actually having such an extreme diet can put you at risk of these, of these patterns that we shouldn't be seeing in 2023, but actually yeah. there is a huge rise in them. Yeah. Now, with ketogenic diet, I, I think that with the ketogenic diet, to me, we're really talking about a, a low-carb, high-fat diet. Mm. Um, and the, it comes in many different varieties because, you know, the, the thing about the carnivore diet is we have, in the same way that it's like the counterpoint to a vegan diet, the carnivore diet, you are not allowed to have plant-based foods if you're going to call it carnivore. If you want to call it animal-based, then it kind of creates a little more flexibility. But if it's carnivore, that is not including plant-based foods. A ketogenic diet can include many different varieties of foods with the core piece being that it is high in fat and low in carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so you could do a plant-based ketogenic diet. And this to me can actually be a high fiber diet. And would I sit here and say that a person is implicitly unhealthy if they're consuming this diet? Well, no. Relative to the standard American diet or the standard British diet, 
Actually, a plant-based ketogenic diet would clearly be a step in the right direction. But I do think that the elimination of certain foods, because you're going to eliminate starchy foods, Mm. which could include legumes, and you're going to eliminate certain foods that contain sugar, which, by the way, the sugar that you find in fruit is not harmful, it's not hurting you, and it's not causing weight gain. So when you eliminate these foods, I actually don't think that you're paying yourself any favors. And I don't think mm-hmm. that the, the structure of being high-fat, low-carb at the expense of eliminating these health-promoting foods that include fruit and legumes and other starchy foods is not actually in your best health interest in the long term. So I do think that we can do better than a plant-based ketogenic diet. I think that we can do better by including those foods that we're excluding. But that being said, I think that that's, that's actually a very... Um, reasonable place to start if that's the dietary pattern that you want to follow. And then we can build from there. So what does a healthy gut microbiome look like? I need to let you in on a health secret that I absolutely swear by. And I've got a special discount code just for you guys. What I love is that it's been developed by a team of biochemists who truly know what they're talking about. And most importantly, they have the evidence to back it up. I'm using a natural mushroom powder every day to keep my immune system strong and also my focus engaged. And what I love is how many of you have tried Bloomin since I've started to mention them on this show. And I've heard so much amazing feedback how it's helped you stay focused and also relaxed. Now, they've got four blends to choose from, but one I think that you definitely need this autumn is the Rescue Blend, which helps to support your immune system, but in a natural way. It contains chaga mushroom, which is one of the most antioxidant-rich foods on the planet. One teaspoon has around the same antioxidants as 500 blueberries. Now, I know what you're thinking, Mushrooms. No, they don't get you high and they don't taste of mushrooms. They're just full of the good stuff. Bloomer's products are also, most importantly, double extracted, meaning that you'll get 10 grams of dried mushrooms in just one gram of extract powder twice, absolutely maximizing these health benefits. So head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code BEATAUTUMN. That's B-E-A-T AUTUMN, which will give you two jars of rescue for the price of one. Get that strong immune defense this autumn and you can even share it with a friend. Find the link to Bloomin in the show notes. Well, there's not a universally agreed upon definition of what constitutes a healthy gut microbiome. And that's a it's, it's, it's a challenge because mm. it's, it, the, the gut microbiome is so complicated. So here's this community specifically within the gut that has 38 trillion microorganisms. Most of them are bacteria. Some of them are fungi. And you could also potentially have archaea, protozoa. And then there's definitely viruses in there as well. And, um, And like dynamically by the microsecond, it is changing. And it is also like geographically variable. So like one specific part of your colon is not the same as this other part of your colon. Right? The sample that you get when you poop is more representative of your rectum, which is the last part of your colon, than it would be of the, um, of the cecum, which is the first part of your colon. So there's a lot of complexity that's built into that. Um, that being said, to me, when we talk about what is a healthy gut, part of this is diversity within the microbiome. That, that diversity that exists is a, a measure of health within any ecosystem. And your gut is an ecosystem, just like 
the Amazon rainforest, just like the Great Barrier Reef. If you take these places, you take my backyard, and there are mosquitoes, and they annoy me. <laughs> I don't like them. But you know what? To be honest with you, I don't want them to be gone. And the reason why mm. I don't want them to be gone is because that will have a ripple effect throughout the ecosystem that will have negative consequences. The mm. bats eat the mosquitoes, the birds eat the mosquitoes, the spiders eat the mosquitoes. And so now we start negatively affecting these things. And then it starts basically moving through the food chain. And those negative effects start to basically destabilize the entire ecosystem. That's the way that it works within our gut. There are good guys. There are bad guys. They exist in balance when they are in balance, which, by the way, we call eubiosis. Eubiosis would be the term for a balanced, healthy gut microbiome. When they're in balance, the good guys are outnumbering the bad guys, and there's plenty of diversity. And because there's plenty of diversity, it is a resilient system. Mm -hmm. It is prepared to do whatever is necessary to basically serve its purpose and to support you and your body. And when we lose that diversity, then effectively we can run into situations where we need our gut to step up and do its job. It's not able to. And the most classic representation of this is when we manifest digestive symptoms. Because there are certain foods that when we consume them, we need our gut microbes in order to properly digest them. Without a healthy gut, you cannot properly digest that food. And so when your gut is struggling to keep up with the demands of what you're asking it to do, because you basically chewed something and swallowed it, and now it's their, it's their, it's their job. Like It's time for them to go to work. When they can't keep up, then they're going to let you know. And that's when you get the bloating, the gas, the discomfort, change in bowel habits, maybe diarrhea or constipation. Right? That's when we manifest those things. But then there's all these other, Sarah, there's all these other ways in which a gut can show you that it's struggling. It could be through your metabolism, your blood sugar control, your blood fat control, your cholesterol levels, your weight. It could be through your immune system, the manifestation of allergic symptoms, autoimmune conditions, how you respond to a virus. It could be uh, through your mood, um, mm. anxiety levels. Depression, mm. feeling down, feeling sadness, or alternatively, feeling optimistic and energized and having tons of energy. So these are all sort of different ways in which an unhealthy gut, you know, we get into hormonal stuff as well. To answer your question, there is no simple stool test or blood test or alternative way to just say that that shows me everything that I need to know right there. Ultimately, we need a holistic view. And that holistic view takes into effect all of these different aspects, including symptoms that affect our digestion or our metabolism or our immune system um, or our mood or hormones. As you're talking about this, I remember kind of my own journey, which, you know, I won't get into lows and I don't talk about that much on here, but it was a very long process to understanding like what was the root cause of this. And one test shows something, one test didn't show something. And so it was a, a kind of a complex mix of, I mean, I just became more confused during the process. And so I think that's something that's really important, that when we talk about a healthy gut, everyone is so individual in their approach to this. Everyone has different levels of what they believe their gut health to look like. And I think that's where it can become so confusing because you look online and you basically see, have you got bloating? Have you got diarrhea? How many times a day do you have a bowel movement? And it sometimes it can be a very simple checklist and we can actually mismatch a lot of our symptoms. So for anyone like listening to this now, what would you say is kind of like the key approach to looking at whether they can help starting to analyze 
if they do have a healthy gut or an unhealthy gut, and if they feel like they're leaning more towards an unhealthy gut, for you as a gastroenterologist, what would you say is important on the next steps and what to take there? Because I do feel that I see so many patients and they have gone through so many hoops to try and figure out what's wrong with them and ended up in complete despair. And I think that's something that is actually only growing on the kind of side of, of social media and mismatch of information. So what advice would you give there? Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think that the frustrating thing is because there's not this like universal, hey, this is the one way to basically figure this out. Then, um, you know, like you could have someone whose opinion I respect who might sit here and say something slightly different than me. So to me, there's three ways in which I think about this. This is the way that I approach this as a gastroenterologist. The three ways are, number one, are you having the symptoms that manifest when a person has an unhealthy gut? So when the gut is not in a good place, you should be manifesting symptoms. Now let's, first of all, like recognize that just because you have symptoms occasionally does not mean you have a problem. So occasional bloating, we all get that, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe an occasional reflux, or there's, there's certain things that will happen once in a while. To me, when it's a chronic issue that is occurring with enough frequency that it is negatively affecting your quality of life, that's when we have crossed the line. And classically, these are digestive symptoms, but it could also include things that are throughout your entire body. So it could be skin changes, fatigue, brain fog, difficulty with focus. Uh, those are some of the, like, the things outside of the gut that could also be manifesting that would be indicative of something going on there. Okay, mm -hmm. so number one, symptoms. Number two, health-related issues. If a person has a chronically damaged gut, which the term that we use is dysbiosis, but sometimes like people refer to this as leaky gut or something like that. If a person has dysbiosis, meaning a chronically damaged gut, then they will likely manifest chronic conditions that are associated with dysbiosis. And there's a very long list. So like within my space, if you were to come see me as a gastroenterologist, Irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, we could keep going. On mm -hmm. a constipation. Um, that's just within the world of a gastroenterologist. But then there's a number of different specialists or different types of doctors that you might see for different issues. You may be having migraine headaches. You go to a neurologist for this. Um, you could have type 2 diabetes and go to your primary care or an endocrinologist. When you look at the list of health-related conditions that you have, if they are associated with a damaged gut, then you know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is looking at a person's bowel movement. So now we have stigmatized this, like, oh, mm. that's, that's all, like, you're not allowed to go there, Dr. B. You're not allowed to oh, talk I about poop. all of my patients with a poo chart. <laughs> we get straight on in. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very important that we normalize this because, mm -hmm. you know, much like if I were a cardiologist, I would, I, I would be a horrible cardiologist if I didn't listen to your heart. Right. If I just talk to you, then what does that make me as a gastro, as as a cardiologist? And in the same respect as a gastroenterologist, the most telling window into what's happening with your digestive system and with your gut microbiome is your bowel movement. And the reason why is because it reflects your microbiome and it reflects your entire digestive process. So when we're having good, normal, healthy bowel movements which are soft but formed like a sausage. And also there's an experiential element to this, not just how it looks, but also how do you feel? 
when you strut out of the restroom, like in slow motion with, with like doves flying up into the air and fireworks shooting off in the background. And you're just like, hell yeah. Then you're in a good spot. You're You're having healthy bowel movements. Yeah. And I would give you, (laughs) after you wash your hands, I would give you a high five. Okay. But Uh flip side, if you kind of like sheepishly come out of the restroom and you're like not satisfied and you kind of feel like you still have to go and it was a little dinky bowel movement that you struggled to get out, you're not where you need to be. So that to me is another window into what's going on with your body that, that, that kind of tells us what's going on. So we've got symptoms. Be aware of all the different symptoms and how frequent. I think that's such a big thing because so many of us occasionally might get bloating, a bit of distension in our gut, and there's no room for panic unless it's happening all the time and it's causing you, as you said, like a real kind of change in your day-to-day life. And I think that's so important because especially for women, I think that's such a fundamental thing um, to be aware of. And again, in link to your menstrual cycle is another one that I think is not spoken about, especially with our gut health, with women. And then two, see a gastroenterologist. And three, if not, um, and there's no dysbiosis, also looking at your bowel movements. And I'm so pleased that you said that because it brings me on to my next question, which is around inflammation. Now, we speak a lot about inflammation, I think. Obviously, we know that inflammation leads to chronic disease. But I want to talk a little bit about, because you've mentioned there, you've popped in fiber a few times and you've popped in legumes and beans. And we've had the Blue Zones on here, Dan, talking about, you know, beans is one of the top five foods for longevity and health and how important foods is. And we have Felice Jacker, obviously did the Smiles trial, who's come on and she just, you know, they call her Mrs. Bean because she just talks about how important it is to have beans within your diet. So I want to go on to a little bit of this because obviously certain high fiber foods go into short chain fatty acids. And that's what's kind of linked to having these anti-inflammatory properties. Can you talk a little bit about why this is so important within our gut links to inflammation and, you know, how can we include more of this? Yeah, so uh, it turns out that our gut microbes are like a chemical factory. And anything that you put into your mouth, chew and swallow, you know, you you have made a choice that you feel that this is safe. You feel that this is adequately safe for you to introduce this into your body. Mm -hmm. And it's going to shoot down this tube and come into contact with these gut microbes. And they have the ability to transform this food. Mm-hmm. And to unlock and release certain aspects of it that you don't actually, as a human, you don't you don't have the digestive enzymes to do this, but they do. And this is a huge part of the way in which they affect our physiology and affect these different systems. If we talk about health starting in the gut, this would be the reason why. It's not the mere presence of these microbes. It's the fact that these microbes have the ability to transform our food and release certain bioactive compounds. And the absolute classic, the number one that everyone should be talking about and aren't enough as far as I'm concerned, are the short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids, the classic ones are butyrate, acetate, and propionate. We get them when we consume prebiotic fiber or resistant starches. And we're not able to get them unless the microbes actually do that for us. They are a manifestation of both our diet and our microbiome working in collaboration to produce something that has massive benefits and effects throughout our entire body. And if we want to talk about inflammation, 
inflammation is an important topic because both of our societies in the U.S. and U.K. are facing an epidemic of inflammatory conditions. Coronary artery disease, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, depression, autoimmune diseases. These are all chronic inflammatory conditions. Mm-hmm. And our gut, the, the part of our body that is like the key piece is the gut barrier. It's a single layer of cells that is so small that we wouldn't be able to see it with the naked eye. We would need a microscope. Mm-hmm. And this single layer of cells separates 38 trillion microbes inside the tube of our intestine from on the other side, inside of our body, 70% of our immune system. And when something breaches this gut barrier, it activates the immune system. And that's what inflammation is. Inflammation mm-hmm. is the activation of your immune system. It's a good thing when it's fighting an infection. It's a mm-hmm. good thing when it's helping us to uh, overcome bodily injury. It's a bad thing when it's just breakdown of the gut barrier because of our diet and lifestyle. And as a result of that breakdown, it's creating chronic inflammation that has these systemic effects. And so having more plants within our diet, so let's go back to this short-chain fatty acids, you know, and the anti-inflammatory properties. How can this really help support that healthy gut barrier? So if we think about um, the way in which our gut barrier regulates itself, because it's it, it is it is constantly um, revising itself. So every four to six days, you will have a brand new layer of cells inside your gut. Wow. Yeah, very quick. So how does it actually do this? Well, so there's a number of things. Number one, short-chain fatty acids rebalance the gut microbiome. So we will actually support the healthy bacteria. We will get more of the bacteria that actually produce short-chain fatty acids. So you start to get yourself where you're building like a snowball, you're building momentum because you can consume the same amount of fiber, but you can get more out of that fiber as you get more of these bacteria. Number two, they will suppress the bacteria that actually are creating inflammation. So we're talking about things like salmonella and shigella and E. coli, Mm -hmm. and they are all suppressed by short-chain fatty acids. So basically what what I've just argued is that Within your microbiome, short-chain fatty acids have the ability to recalibrate and to move you away from dysbiosis and back towards a better balance. That's the microbiome. But then when we talk about your gut barrier, part of the reason Mm -hmm. why the gut barrier breaks down is when there's an inadequate supply of the short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids actually help us to create the proteins that seal the barrier and keep the cells together. So that these things like, for example, bacterial endotoxin that comes from those inflammatory bacteria, mm-hmm. bacterial endotoxin cannot cross into the bloodstream, cannot come into contact with the immune system if the gut barrier is intact. And the way that we get the gut barrier intact is actually by fueling it with short-chain fatty acids, specifically butyrate. I'm so pleased we're talking about this because I honestly believe this is one of the most under-discussed areas as well. And I'm just thinking, as we're going into autumn, people are already probably thinking, oh, I want to start fighting the lurgy. You've already just mentioned about the immune system, 70% being made within the gut. So people who are listening to our conversation to now, who might have been having some thoughts around, maybe I've got some dysbiosis or maybe I do have some of these symptoms, starting to include these fiber-rich foods 
which helped to curate these short-chain fatty acids, is such an amazing start because all of this had such a bigger effect on your health. You know, as you said, the gut lining, but the butyrate, everything. So actually, it's one of the first steps that we can all be taking because a lot of the times we hear about this plant-based food, right? Many of us don't truly know why or how it's working at that kind of like cellular level. And that's really kind of the main thing that you can actually start changing this quite quickly. I have a favor to ask. 74% of people that watch this podcast haven't hit subscribe and 15% haven't hit the bell to turn on notifications. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible to keep sharing expert information and powerful stories to improve your life. So if you've ever enjoyed my podcast, please hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Doing this small favor will really help me. Thank you. Sarah, you can change this literally in less than 24 hours. So it's four to six days for your gut barrier, these, these cells lining your intestines for them to basically create new ones. But in terms of creating new microbes, creating new bacteria, reshaping the microbiome, they actually are returning over, like literally you could start with one bacteria and 24 hours later, it could have a thousand offspring. That's wow. how quickly they are procreating. And we get to choose. This is the important point is that we get to choose. We don't think about this necessarily when we're, you know, um, consuming some ice cream or something like this. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't necessarily think about this, but the choices that we make in our overall dietary pattern ultimately are selecting for the types of bacteria that we're going to have in our microbiome. And whatever it is that you eat, the evidence is clear. Within 24 hours of it hitting your colon, which is where these microbes live, within 24 hours, they will be categorically different as a result of your diet. So the food that you eat today by tomorrow, it's already going to start to change. That just... A hit gives a lot of people a lot of confidence that they can actually empower their health quite quickly from doing these things. A hundred percent. And the other thing that I think is really important to relate to all the listeners is that this is not about some idealized dietary pattern that frankly, none of us are going to be able to get to, including myself, right? Like so I eat ice cream sometimes. That. Yeah. I eat ice cream sometimes. I'm not here to tell you that you can never have ice cream. But what it is, is it's about making these small choices, right? So every mm. single meal, every single snack is an opportunity to make small choices that start to build momentum. And when you build this momentum, and it's a sustainable dietary pattern, this is why I think this is like the most underrated part of, of our choices is like, mm. let's do something we can actually stick with as opposed to something that we're going to do for three weeks or four weeks and then quit. As you build this momentum, these small choices they start to build up over time. And as long as you keep doing these small choices, it will build up and you will get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the other thing that happens is those, th those choices that seem like they're hard in the beginning, they get easy because they become a part of your habit. Mm -hmm. And then you start to crave those choices that you used to think you would never crave. You start to actually crave them. It's a bizarre thing, but that's what happens. Trust me, I've been on this journey. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And it becomes even more obvious when you actually start studying nutritional science and you realize like the direct impact. But trust me, I never ate like this 15 years ago. <laughs> I grew up eating hot dogs out of 43 years, out of 43 spins on this planet, more than 30 of them were me eating junk food. 
And I knew the moment I knew, I'd be curious to hear from you when you knew something was different. To me, the moment I knew that something was different was that when you go and you travel and you come home, you crave that one meal that you've been missing that normally is a part of your diet. Mm -hmm. And I knew that something had changed when I stopped craving like, you know, an Italian sub sandwich. And instead I wanted to go and get a salad and a kombucha. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> who are I you? I recognize myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I had quite a similar journey, if I'm honest. I think it's when I started cooking a lot for myself much more at home. Because I lived in America for five years. So a lot of the stuff I relate to. And I came back and I really started focusing on the food that I was eating. And I think I just was, I was sleeping better I felt so much better. I felt more energetic. For me, it was more actually like my energy because I would be having to visit the bathroom so much and it just completely de-energized me and I couldn't get my head around why. And actually getting that energy back was such a light bulb moment that I just didn't want that to leave. And I realized that actually I had the control within myself. But for years, I felt quite out of control. And I think that that's a really frustrating thing when it comes to this. It's trying to navigate this. And then when you find it, you're like, I can't ever let this go because now I feel quite normal. But you, I had looked as normal as subnormal for so long because I just learned to live with the conditions that I was experiencing. And I think when you make that shift, it's so obvious, but it can be really hard to get there. Yeah, you never, once you experience that and you feel different, you never want to go back. And, um, and I love that you brought up energy because that to me is like something that we need to be talking about more in this space. It's a little bit of a uh, nebulous thing in a way, energy. Like a doctor doesn't have a way to measure. It's just your subjective experience, right? But if you were to, for example, take the heart rate variability that you were making mention of earlier, right? If you wear uh, some sort of wearable device and you pay attention to your heart rate variability, you will notice that your energy correlates with your heart rate variability, you will definitely notice that. And your energy also correlates with how you're doing from a, from a gut perspective and from an inflammatory perspective because all of these things were looking at the exact same thing. When your gut is not in a good place, then your immune system is not in a good place. And when your immune system is not in a good place, place you're going to feel fatigue. And so I think this is, this is, the, this is the measure that like, we, don't, we don't need testing to tell us. How do you feel? Do you feel energized or do you feel fatigue? Mm -hmm. And if you're not where you need to be from an energy perspective, we need to get you there. And I think the way to do it is through your gut. I mean, I couldn't agree more. If you look at kind of like the statistics of people that suffer with irritable bowel syndrome and also their mental health as well, depression, anxiety, all of these things are so interlinked and it, it all starts at the guts. And I think this is the, this is the biggest thing. And, and it's interesting. Energy was my kind of my biggest indicator where I was like, give me the vegetables, pass me the vegetables. You know, whereas when I was 15, I was not saying that at all. And I think this brings me on actually really nicely to my next question, because I don't know about you, and I'm sure you talk about this and see this a lot in patients that come to you, but it's food intolerances, which is different to a food allergy. And a food allergy is, is more severe and, and it happens very, very quickly. But a lot of people can suffer with food intolerances. How can we identify them? So I think that you appropriately started with the first question, which is, is it a food allergy or a food intolerance? We have to make that distinction. It's an important distinction. A food allergy, allergy in general, means that your immune system is being activated in response to something that is foreign to your body. 
So that could be a, that could be seasonal allergies or exposure to pet dander, or in this case, it's exposure to a specific food. Now there are these classic foods that are known to trigger food allergies, and we think that they account for over ninety percent of food allergies out there. So, and this includes fish, shellfish, uh, eggs, dairy, wheat or gluten-containing products, uh, soy, corn. I may have forgot one. I think I think that covers either all of them or very close. Sesame was recently added to the list as well. I commend you for disremembering one of those. <laughs> but the the key here, though, is that when you consume this food in any amount, mm. it could be the smallest amount. It could be the tip of the tongue touching a little bit. It will activate your immune system and initiate a violent reaction. And that reaction can manifest with digestive symptoms, but typically will also manifest with systemic symptoms, meaning throughout your entire body, which could be hives, skin changes, swelling. The stuff that we scare, get scared of as doctors is if you get swelling of the lips or of the throat, because that could negatively affect your ability to breathe. Do you want to know what mine is, Will? Yeah. It's the worst allergy of all time. It's grapefruit. <laughs> grapefruit? Do you get it? Is it an yes. oral allergy? Yeah. I, I, it's, uh, my tongue explodes. I get lumps and welts all over my body. Like, I restrict oh. some breathing. Other citrus, you do okay? Yeah, citrus is fine. But I'm just, just giving the love out there to grapefruit to anyone else who's got that allergy. I feel you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think that the key here is that you've just exemplified, though. Because if you, if you, if you touch, if, if you put grapefruit to your lips on any level, you don't even have to, like, literally put a piece into your mouth. You could literally just put your lips on the grapefruit. It would probably trigger that reaction, and that's a scary reaction. That happened last week. I was I put in a cocktail, just a tiny little bit, and I barely touched it, and my night was over within oh, a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's an allergy. Yeah, that's an allergy, <laughs> and that's an that's the activation of the immune system. And a food intolerance mm. is different. So we have to rule out food allergy first, and then what is left is a food intolerance is when you consume a food in normal amounts, like. You know, if we drink a gallon of milk, we're going to get sick. We're all going to get sick if we drink a gallon of milk, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not a normal amount. A a food intolerance is when you consume a food in normal amounts and it triggers symptoms. And the reason why is because this is not activation of your immune system in response to a foreign thing. This is your body struggling to process and digest the food. Mm -hmm. And so it's sloppy digestion. The classic food intolerance is lactose intolerance. If we expand our view, there's sort of two main categories of food intolerances that I think about. Um, These are the classics, and they're unique and different. The first is in response to carbohydrates. These are FODMAPs. Mm -hmm. So F-O-D-M-A-P. This is an acronym that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. It's a mouthful. Um, I'm so pleased you said that, not me. (laughs) Yeah. It includes fructose, which is a sugar that you will find in many many fruits. It includes uh, lactose from dairy products. Fructans, which are more complicated, almost like fiber, and you will find them in garlic, onions, in gluten-containing foods, so like wheat, barley, and rye. So in a number of different foods, you can find these fructans. And then galactans, which you'll find in legumes. And finally, the polyols are, are 
the sugar alcohols that you may find in fruit, but you may also find in artificial sweeteners mm. that you add to you know, your coffee or something like that or your tea. This group, this big group of FODMAPs, this is one type of uh, food intolerance. And it's interesting because like, there are these people who think that they have gluten intolerance. And we could dig into the evidence if you want to, Sarah, but many of these people, if they don't have celiac disease, actually, they're not responding to the gluten. They're responding to the fructan, which is found in the wheat or the barley or the rye. It's a food intolerance. Or the other type of food intolerance is um, histamine intolerance, which is not quite as common as FODMAP intolerance. But histamine intolerance is basically where you have a damaged gut and because you have a damaged gut, your body is struggling to process and digest high histamine foods. And this could include like the classic high histamine foods are like fish, shellfish, fermented foods. And then among the plant-based foods, spinach, tomatoes, avocados, and eggplant. Mm -hmm. Those are the classic high histamine foods. The key with these is that your body can be trained to consume these foods. And if you were to take these foods that you have an intolerance to and reduce and moderate the amount that you consume at one time, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. So if you simply reduce the amount, you can consume these foods that you struggle with. And by reducing that amount, you actually start to get better at consuming these foods. And so it's conceptually similar to exercise. No one walks into the gym on the first day and lifts the heaviest weights. Mm. The people who are lift, lifting heavy weights, it's because they've been building up to that for many years. Each of us has a certain capacity for work that we're capable of. And so when we go to the gym, you should work out within the, the bounds of what your body is capable of doing without crossing that line. And when mm -hmm. you do this, the line starts to move and over time you're able to do more. And that's the concept of exercise, and that's the same concept that we should apply to overcoming food intolerances. Exercise your gut, and you will make it stronger. I love that you conceptualize this into two different parts. And I think a lot of people may have heard, and well, definitely our listeners would have heard, the FODMAPs in relation to, obviously, Monash University. And we had actually them come on and talk about how they created the FODMAP diet and heavily linked to IBS. And, and that was, you know, fascinating. And obviously, as you said, it's, it's not something that you can never have. The whole part of the FODMAP diet is that it's meant to be a short-term strategy. And then you're meant to reintroduce these foods. Whereas, sadly, when it's done incorrectly, a lot of people get like an incredible amount of fear from these foods because they're terrified of reintroducing them. And that's when, you know, actually a lot of kind of disordered eating can happen. But then you also mentioned another one, which... It's a chapter in your book, by the way. It's a whole chapter on histamine. It's fascinating because my brother, actually, the other day, doesn't really have any food allergies, any intolerances. And um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. It was about six months ago, and his whole body just all of a sudden reacted. I mean, his tongue was sized up. And I mean, when you were talk talking about, like, an allergy, this was the response. And we were trying to figure out what it was. And when he went to A&E, the doctor said, what have you eaten? And he was like, what I eat every day? Salmon beans, like normal things, but he'd left the salmon in the fridge for so long, typical man, hadn't like 
put it in any protective packaging and the histamine had risen so high that it caused a really big kind of histamine reaction. Can you talk a little bit more about how can we detect, like which route are we going down? So if someone's listening to this and saying, okay, well, I've got a food allergy and I don't really know where to start. Maybe I have a histamine allergy or maybe I go down kind of the FODMAP side. How can people navigate um, this area a lot more and, and a lot more clearly? I am so happy that we've teamed up with Bloomin for this season of the podcast. Try their natural mushroom powder today to defend and support your immune system this autumn. Head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code BEAT, B-E-A-T, autumn, to get two jars of mushroom powder for the price of one. There is a link in the show notes. Great question. Uh, Your brother, what he had specifically we call scombroid poisoning. And so, and it's not necessarily indicative of a chronic histamine intolerance. So it's, uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up is there's a bit of a distinction. To me, a chronic histamine intolerance is that when you routinely consume foods that are higher in histamine, you manifest symptoms. Whereas in his case, it was a one-time deal where he consumed this bad fish. And it's a classic thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the the bad fish because it's been, it's, basically hasn't been cooked and it's been sitting out for too long, has turned into a super high histamine food. And even with a healthy person, it would overwhelm them and they get this form of food poisoning. All right, how do we how do we approach this issue? So let's pretend for a moment, if it's okay, I would like to break this into three possibilities. The three possibilities are a food allergy, FODMAP intolerance, or histamine intolerance. Okay, now, Food allergy is going to be a manifestation of systemic effects. It could be gas and bloating. It could also be skin changes, swelling, things like this, lightheadedness, all right, to one specific food Mm -hmm. or to one class of foods, right? So it could be dairy products. And every single dairy product food, if you consume it, you get this reaction right? With you, the one food is grapefruit, right? It's no other food. It's just grapefruit. And the thing about a food allergy is that it's a response of your immune system to one of the proteins. It's always a protein. So if you have a food allergy, it's going to always, it's going to be consistent. It can be any amount. It could be small or large, and it's going to be these systemic effects. All right. Number two, in terms of possibilities, is a FODMAP intolerance. Now, a FODMAP intolerance is going to be to these classes of foods. So it could be fructose or uh, lactose, which is in dairy products, or fructans, again, in wheat, barley, rye, garlic, onions, or galactans from legumes. Um, And it's not as necessarily consistent as the food allergy would be. It also is going to manifest with digestive specific symptoms when it's a FODMAP issue, right? So it's like these are people that get gas, bloating, discomfort, diarrhea, or constipation, classically occurring in people that have irritable bowel syndrome Mm. or some other digestive health problem like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, all right? So these are the people that will manifest one of these types of intolerances. And again, like if you thought of these as categories, now this typically involves working with a registered dietitian, 
But if you were to work with a registered dietitian and basically test within these categories, you would find that it's not just grapefruit. It's this class of of fructose-containing foods that's causing the issues. So any food that contains fructose can be potentially problematic. All right, so it's a class effect. And you're not going to get the tongue swelling um, or the hives or things like this. Mm-hmm. All right. The third one, less common, a little bit more tricky, is the histamine intolerance. Because the histamine intolerance, yes, it will manifest with digestive symptoms like bloating. That's sort of the classic symptom. But most of the time with histamine intolerance, it's also going to manifest with other symptoms throughout your entire body. Could be headache, could be migraine. A low histamine diet has been shown in clinical trials to be beneficial to people that have migraine headaches. This is like the origin of this concept. And what's a low histamine diet? Can we name some foods that? I mean, obviously, it's the reverse of high histamines, but just so people can start thinking, well, what would that then look like? What would that then mean me cutting out of my diet? And what would I be leaning more towards? All foods contain histamine. There's no such thing as a zero histamine diet. Mm -hmm. And the reason why all foods contain histamine has to do with the microbes. All foods have microbes. And these microbes, they actually can take uh, amino acids that are part of our food and transform them. So if you take a food and the longer that it sits around, like the fish with your brother, the longer that it sits around, the more time that you are given to these microbes to produce histamine from it. Fish, shellfish, Fermented foods, these are the classic high histamine foods. All right. So on a low histamine diet, you wouldn't be able to consume those foods. Um, Or you would work towards eventually consuming those foods over time. The classic plant-based foods are things like spinach, avocados, tomatoes, and eggplant. Now, if you had a garden in your backyard and you picked a tomato and ate it, you would be fine. The issue is that's not how we're getting our food. We're getting it from our supermarket where it sits around for a period of time and becomes a high histamine food. So when it comes to like what is low histamine, um, most plant-based foods are low histamine. And so that actually gives us a lot of options if we're willing to play in this sort of space. In my cookbook, I actually lay out like here are the high histamine foods, here are the low histamine foods, and all the recipes, this is one of the key things In my cookbook, all the recipes are low histamine. There's over 20 recipes. And so this is important because if you ultimately want to test to determine whether or not you have this condition, the way that you do this is by actually introducing a low histamine diet and then seeing how you feel. If you do a low histamine diet for a period of time and you notice that your symptoms go away, then you have basically proven that you... Uh, have histamine intolerance. Wow. I mean, so much about it, isn't it, is about observing yourself, trying these things, and either a dietitian or in a non-restrictive way as much as possible for a limited amount of time to see what the symptoms are. And it's a lot when, you know, I ask them to do a food diary and you see their face of thinking, this is going to be a really long game of figuring out what's wrong with me. But actually, it's one of the most important steps that it's not kind of a pill it's not a quick fix. So much about this is like trial and error of learning on yourself, actually, on 
how you're feeling and the symptoms. It's so important that actually these conversations just start happening so people can start navigating these areas. Whereas I think a lot of my listeners will know the FODMAP, but they won't know the histamine diet that you just recommended. Yeah, I think the part of my advocacy is is about encouraging abundance and and the the opposite of a restrictive diet. And that may sound counterintuitive as I sit here and talk about low FODMAP and low histamine. And so that just to just to be completely clear that these dietary patterns as you mentioned, which I think is the absolutely crucial part of this conversation, that when we introduce a temporarily restrictive diet, the key is it's temporary. And it's being done with an, a specific intent and purpose. That intent is as a diagnostic tool. Because the problem that we have with these food intolerances is that there is no blood test or breath test or microbiome test that can or tell hair you. Test. Or hair test. Right? Or we can keep going. There's so it's many. What's but, happening. Yeah. Yeah. And none of them are, none of them are clinically valid. Mm-hmm. None of them have a PubMed paper that we can point towards and say, I'm, I am confident that if you use this test, it will tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. The key is how do you feel? That's the key. And, and using these tools, a low FODMAP diet or a low histamine diet, specifically when being guided by an expert who understands these tools, it's a diagnostic test. It is the gold standard diagnostic test. There is no superior way to approach these specific issues than to use these specific tools, which is to apply these diets. Mm-hmm. But as a diagnostic test, it, it like once you make the diagnosis, you move forward. And moving forward means ultimately working towards reintroducing these foods. And I'm here to tell everyone and to give them hope that this is not about introducing a restrictive dietary pattern and being stuck. As we discussed during our conversation today, your gut is adaptable. You change your diet today, your gut microbiome will be different by tomorrow. And that gives us the capacity and the opportunity to make small changes slowly over time that can completely transform our microbiome. And by completely transforming our microbiome, transforming the way in which we interact with our food and allowing us to take these foods that we think are the enemy and we're restricting and we're avoiding them. And perhaps it's pushing us towards this low carb diet or towards a carnivore diet because we think they're the enemy. When in Mm -hmm. fact, those foods want to be your friend and I want you to enjoy them. And the way that you get there. That's the biggest thing. The the enjoyment, right? And they can be so, so delicious. And I think that's kind of like the pinnacle of all of this, you know, plant-based foods, kind of the epicenter of like really helping your gut microbiome, not just heal, but reset and flourish. I think that's the word that I like really getting from today. Like we actually have the power to make our gut microbiome flourish. And I love that so much of this conversation is all being really directed towards plants and fiber and like the consumption of these foods. But something that has come up so much when I put a question box up about you coming on the show, everyone wants to know about supplements, probiotics, what should they be taking? Should they be taking anything? And there is kind of a, the jury, I don't feel like the jury is quite out. I feel like there is a lot of mixed information here on probiotics. So can we talk about this for just a minute. What is your stance on these? Of course, I'm happy to. 
My position on this has been extremely consistent. If you read my first book, Fiber Fueled, which I basically started writing in 2018, and it got published in 2020, like my position has not changed. So here's what it is. I don't think that you can out-supplement a bad diet or an unhealthy lifestyle. You can't take a C-minus gut and buy some supplements off the internet and turn that into an A+. That's an unreasonable expectation. But that does not mean that there is not an important role for supplements in addition to diet and lifestyle. So to me, we always want to start with diet and lifestyle because this is where we can create an opportunity that completely transforms things. In that process, you may find benefit from prebiotic supplements, probiotic supplements, or other gut-related supplements. And they may help you to overcome your symptoms more quickly and have the ability to add back these foods even faster as a result of them. So when it comes to probiotics specifically, because that seems to be the area of, of, of main interest, there's a little bit of a challenge when it comes to probiotics. So I do believe that they exist. There is no doubt. And I have treated hundreds of patients, at least, if not thousands, with probiotics successfully with great results. I'm going to tell you how I approach this. Every single one of us, myself, you, the listeners, we have a unique gut microbiome. There's no one like us. There's no one like us on the entire planet. When you introduce a probiotic, you're introducing a new neighbor. And you just don't know how this is going to work out until it actually happens. Right? It's impossible to predict. And this is the reason why the probiotic or the medication that works for one person and gives them a miraculous effect can actually have no effect or in some rare cases, a negative effect mm. on a different person. So ultimately what it comes down to is this. Number one, let's let science guide us. When it comes to supplements, let's let's just like everything else, let's let science guide us. Do we have clinical trials to say that this specific type of probiotic has a benefit for whatever my specific goal is? If my goal is to overcome irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, I should find the probiotic that is best for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation based upon the studies, All right? As opposed to generic marketing, like this probiotic is good for you. Once we have that probiotic, you commit to at least one month or possibly two months, somewhere in that range, one or two months. And you buy the product and you give it a try. And there is something that you're measuring. So again, if the example is irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, then what I'm measuring is I want to know how often am I pooping? Do I feel like I get relief when I go? And am I reducing my bloating? Because everyone who has constipation has bloating, all of them. So that ultimately becomes, to me, as a gastroenterologist, the measure. And if you start taking this probiotic and you're like, dang, dude, I'm pooping. I get great relief. My bloating has substantially improved. And maybe I'm able to eat foods that I couldn't eat before. Okay, you're getting a great benefit. And if that's the case, you've demonstrated this probiotic works. And then it's just a question of, are you comfortable with that cost? So that to me is the way that I approach this. Flip side, there's this probiotic and there's, there's a bazillion clinical trials that say this works for everyone. 
but you start taking it and you notice no benefit, nothing has changed. I don't know why you would continue to buy that probiotic. So that's the way that I typically will approach these, uh, these types of things. When it comes to prebiotics, I'm a, actually a bigger fan of prebiotics than I am probiotics. As a supplement? And, yeah. Or as a food? No, as a supplement and as okay. a food. We have a fiber gap. By fiber gap, what I mean is that we're all deficient and we, and we need more. We have a resistant starch gap. And what I mean by that is that we are deficient in resistant starch and we need more. These are, these are the butyrate short-chain fatty acid producing nutrients, fiber and resistant starches. And you can get it from your diet. And I 100% support that. But I also have had people who are on a plant-based diet, high in fiber, that I have seen firsthand improve their gut health in terms of improving their symptoms, improving their bowel movements with prebiotic supplements. And what I dig about prebiotic supplements is that there's a little bit more of a one-size-fits-all when it comes to your gut mm -hmm. because the fiber is the fiber um, as mm -hmm. opposed to the probiotic, which is very specific to your gut's, you know, your gut microbiome and whether or not that probiotic fits in with your gut. So I tend to favor prebiotic supplements. Mm. I love that you said that. I mean, I always think of prebiotics as the fertilizer for the gut, which I think is a terminology which is used a lot, but it basically yeah. isn't as used. I mean, I've not heard the neighbor one. I think that's great because some of, you know, sometimes we love our neighbors and sometimes we don't. But it's true, you know, you're kind of putting in live bacteria and whether that's going to kind of work hand in hand in synergy with your own gut microbes, we just don't know. And I think it's such a hard field as an expert to navigate because as you said, there are some studies that have shown such favorable effects, but it's so specific to that supplement. Yet we can walk in, especially in the UK, and I know even more in America, where there is a host of supplements on the wall. And the average person just goes, I just don't know where to start. And they are all marketed so well that you just kind of end up going with like, oh, this one looks quite good as opposed to like what we're kind of crunching on is like, what is the science saying? And I think that's where this like whole mismatch of information kind of comes from. This is a complex and challenging issue. And I, I, hope, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but this is like literally the exact reason why I decided to start a supplement company. And I, this is like, it's not something that I've talked about publicly, but I guess now is the time because we're going to be starting and launching in the next six weeks. UK and exclusive, I love this. Uh, yeah. this Go is, on, this is like a, tell us about the supplements. I guess it's a worldwide wide exclusive because I've only really talked about this a little bit internally with my own community. Um, and even then I haven't really talked about it very much. So, but you know, the, the, the struggle for me for many years now has been that I, I have seen and witnessed the beneficial effects of these supplements for people, but I have also struggled with, well, which one do I recommend? Do they have clean manufacturing practices? Can I actually trust them? Right. And also what is the science? And I always felt like with all of these things, both prebiotics and probiotics, I always sat there as a gastroenterologist and said, I could make something so much better than this. And so after my first book came out, I had a, like, I was overwhelmed with the number of people who were reaching out to me basically saying like, Dr. B, what fiber do you recommend? What, what prebiotic supplement, what probiotic do you recommend? And again, like, how can I vouch if I don't really know? Mm. So ultimately I got to a place where shortly after my book came out, like six months after my book came out, this was in early 2021, 
I made the decision that I should just do this myself and create the products that I actually would want to give to my own patients. And so the name of our company is called 38 Terra, 38 T-E-R-A. Terra mm -hmm. means trillion. So it refers to the 38 trillion microbes. And um, we're going to be launching principally in the U.S. and Australia. I'm quite sure that people can get access to this in the U.K. If, if you like, it's just the shipping expense that may be more. But we're going to be launching principally in the U.S. and Australia in probably late October or early November mm -hmm. with what I would describe as the prebiotic that I always wished that I had for my own patients. That's what our first product is, the prebiotic. So some unique characteristics of it, it has three different types of prebiotics. It has fiber, resistant starches, and polyphenols. It's mm -hmm. also low in FODMAP. It's also low FODMAP. And it also has an ingredient that's actually been shown in studies, human studies, to lower blood histamine levels. So like if you had a FODMAP issue, this would be the prebiotic for you. If you had a histamine issue, this would be the prebiotic for you. If you just want a balanced prebiotic that kind of checks all the boxes, this would be the prebiotic for you. I love it. I think it's such a nice kind of like lead on. I think it's one of those things that, you know, I think people have such a strong view about supplements. Some people are very against them. Some people are very for them. And I guess kind of my own personal opinion from navigating this as a nutritional scientist, but also, you know, through my own health journey, um, of someone who's suffered a lot themselves is that actually there's a time and place for everything. You've just got to understand the right advice that you're getting, right? And I think that's kind of the crux of it. Kind of going online, maybe half of these supplements don't actually say what they do. They might be detrimental. You might not even know what you're suffering with to start with. All of these things play into the bigger picture. And I think something that is also really important is stress. You know, we haven't touched much upon kind of like, you know, the bi-directional link, which I know we spoke a lot with Felice Jacaron from the Smiles Trial, but it's it's such a big part. And, you know, we've, we've focused on food, we've focused on the importance of fibre, which is something that I shouted about last week on the TV show about we need to make fibre sexy. Will, you've got to try and help me do this. We've got to make fibre sexy because it is kind of the crux, right? Fibre is sexy. Fibre is sexy. It is sexy. But it's yes. like... it's Health, like Healthy one... is sexy. <laughs> sexy, But yeah. it's like a piece of this mosaic, right? And it's like, okay, so yeah. we've got the fiber in now. Okay, well, that's fantastic. And we've ticked a huge box that so many people struggle with. But what about your stress? How much are you moving? Like, I mean, we spoke about this earlier. Do you have any pets? All of these things influence our gut microbiome, yet we seem to kind of have a very narrow lens in it. And so when we talk about supplements... It's such a broad picture in how we talk about these things. Sarah, this is the holistic view. This is the whole, you're, you, what you're bringing up is really an important point because we, we can get so in the trenches, in the weeds with diet, for example, that you lose, that you lose sight of these other things. And, mm -hmm. and I, I could not agree with you more that when there's an opportunity to do something that benefits your health, why would you deny it based upon some sort of principle of, of a certain variety, right? Like there are some people that think, oh, well, we should use the natural approach and never use medication. I completely disagree. Mm -hmm. I think that we also should not just use medication and ignore the natural approach. I think that we should find the best of both worlds. And this is where the best of both worlds is taking advantage of where the science guides us on all of them, right? So when it, when it comes to supplements, it should be science-based and it should be transparent. And that's what 38 Terra, our company, is going to be completely about. But when it comes to the way in which our mood affects our health, 
I'm so glad that you brought this up at the at the last minute because because in my experience, there are many people out there who are suffering with digestive issues who eat right and they sleep and they exercise. And the one thing that's missing is this. Either there's stress in their life, um, it could be job related, it could be stress at home, it could be, you know, a relationship, or there's something that's sort of lingering from their past that's continuing to trouble them. And these things, whether you are consciously thinking about this or it is part of your non-conscious mind, either way, it will manifest with damage to your gut microbiome. To try to fix these things is complicated and it's individualized. But the very first step is the same for all of us. The acknowledgement, the acknowledgement that this connection exists is important. Mm -hmm. And I'm so pleased that that you mentioned that because I speak, I mean, I didn't want to take, go too much into mental health in the show because it's all I ever speak about is connection with our, with our mental health and how everything is so interconnected, especially to our guts. But I'm so pleased that we've ended on that because it, it brings me, and I couldn't let you go without bringing in the Apple bonus question, which is something for like our inner circle. And it would heavily focus on this question around, you know, food is one of the main factors that we can all start to change quite quickly. But what are the other things that we can do? Maybe give me three. And I'll see if they match with the ones I'm thinking. But the three things that we can do to heal our gut or to support our gut health and our gut microbiome without even lifting our fork or thinking about food. Because this is something that I think is so fundamental. Now, if you want to listen to that, head over to Apple Podcasts now and subscribe to Live Well, Be Well. For now, Dr. B, I have one more question for you. What does Live Well, Be Well mean to you? Live Well, Be Well to me is a life filled with joy. And, and that joy comes from many different places. And it can be from your food, from your relationships, or just the small moments throughout a day. Mm. Do you know what? I've had probably 200 episodes on this show. Continuous answer question is live well. What does live well be meant to you? I don't think I've ever had a similar answer. And then last week I had your colleague on, Dr. Sarah Berry, who literally answered that the same as you. You're kidding. You know, it's interesting because we work together at Zoe and where I think we're in a similar phase of our life. We're quite similar in age. We're quite similar in terms of family. And um, there's a little bit of a brother and sister relationship between us. Mm, yeah, well, you've definitely got similar views on your values of life. So I think but that's beautiful. So you can tell her that um, I told you. I always try and think, is there anyone going to have a similar answer? And no one has yet until now. So you and Sarah, and I mean, it's great. You're both working for Zoe and both trying to change, you know, and help people's relationship to health. Thank you so much for coming on. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you everyone for listening and being a part of this conversation today. I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe everyone's well-being journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritize, how to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed or even ignored. 
but I'm here to help and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals, or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need, and you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just $14.99. Just click the link in the description or visit my website, and I'll see you there. Thanks for listening.